Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 342 of the podcast for May 21st, 2019. My guest today is Adam Ward. He is author of the book, Lean Design in Healthcare, A Journey to Improve Quality and Process of Care. Adam is an innovation process expert and an independent advisor. He spent the first 12 years of his career designing cars for Honda and the next 12 working with Fortune 500 companies to turn around their product development process. He's a resident Buckeye. He coaches students at Ohio State's MBOE program. That's a Master's of Business and Operational Excellence program. So in this episode, we discuss Adam's early days at Honda and how he made a career transition into healthcare. We'll talk about the story behind his book and some of his experiences and practices that are transferable, going from what was called simultaneous engineering at Honda to lean design. What are some of the most common failures? How can we coach leaders so they aren't just giving lip service to methodologies like this? We'll discuss all of that and more. If you want to find links to Adam's website and book uh, and a whole lot more, you can go to leanblog.org slash 342. Well, again, we're joined today by Adam Ward. Adam, thanks for being here on the podcast with us. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. So excited to talk about your book and lean design, but why don't you start off first, you know, introduce yourself. You've got an interesting career path and you can introduce yourself to the listeners. Yeah, I think it's quite popular now to talk about career reinvention. And I certainly wouldn't have planned this when I was in college. I got my undergraduate in mechanical engineering and I went and designed Hondas for a dozen years in central Ohio and really loved that job. Then a headhunter called me one day and said, hey, do you know anything about lean product development? And I said, no. He said, well, let me send you a book and you can read the book. And uh, I read the book and I said, oh, you mean my job description. This is what I do <laughs> on a daily basis. And I, I didn't know what the academics called it. And, yeah. uh, and then I switched to GE Healthcare and they wanted to do lean product development at GE Healthcare. And I worked there several years. I really enjoyed it. And then you know, GE, the leaders change a lot and we got a new chief technology officer and I had a boutique consulting firm come and ask me, hey, can you lead our lean design division? So that was almost 10 years ago now. Yeah. So, I mean, you and I, there's some parallels in our career paths because my background is also engineering. I ended up having that sort of, you know, career detour slash reinvention when I went from manufacturing um, to healthcare. So maybe, you know, if we can explore that a little bit, I'm curious, you know, I'm, I'm guessing the book about lean product development uh, may have talked a lot about Toyota and maybe put them up on a pedestal, but it, it sounds like Honda had, did, did, did it seem to you in that reading that Honda had some pretty similar practices? Yeah, it was, it was the Toyota production uh, product development system and it, almost everything was identical in that except for the role of a simultaneous engineer. Um, it was a, a, not as quite a manufacturing focus on the product development side. The, the design person really held uh, more authority than the, than the manufacturing person, but it's very, very similar. And, and for people who don't know the term simultaneous engineer, can you, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so that was the the main person at Toyota that would be responsible for making sure the design and the manufacturability of the product were best. And they didn't want to bring designs in that increased 
cycle time or, or reduced warranty uh, or reduced um, quality. And so that person was the top one and they, they reported mainly through manufacturing. So, th- so the, this was looking at, at, at topics like design for manufacturability or design for assembly, right. making sure that right. there's integrated product and process development. Is exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's so you know, I'll pick on GM because that's where I started my career and my, my dad was, um, was an engineer at General Motors, not in design, not in car design, but you know, everyone likes to pick on the, uh, the Pontiac Aztec <laughs> as yeah. sort of a classic, what were they thinking, ugly vehicle. But, you know, my dad and, uh, you know, the, you know, def- in defending the design said the, uh, the original design was actually much more attractive. The problem was stamping the sheet metal was oh, a sure. real problem. And I think, and I think more than anything, um, the cost cutters said, well, that's too expensive to, to do those curves. And you ended up with a car that was maybe more designed by accountants and committee, no offense to accountants, but that's different yeah. being a vehicle designer. Right. Right. Well, well, when you have a press that's, you know, five, six stories tall and it's slamming down, you know, every couple of seconds, you know, every second, and you only have four stamps to get a giant body panel out those, those radii and those holes and the tolerances are all important. So yeah, I can see how they would do that. Yeah. So it's just the realities of design and manufacturing. Right. And, uh, but, um, how, you know, so you, you ended up in, in GE healthcare and then you had an opportunity to sort of, I guess, a, a bit of an adjacent reinvention to, to get involved, um, with healthcare from the, from the side of hospitals and healthcare delivery. Right. Yes. So, so when how, I switched, how did, that, yeah, how did that happen? Yeah. Yeah. So when Simpler hired me from G Healthcare and said, Hey, can you do this, you know, product development system for us? They were mainly focused since their founding on the manufacturing side and they wanted to move more upstream. And the CEO, Mark Hafer, said, I want you to take your stuff to healthcare. And I remember telling him it's, it's not going to work. I, I don't see how healthcare and product development go along. And he just kept pushing me and pushing me. And, uh, and eventually, you know, I worked with, you know, dozens of healthcare clients and then we figured a, a system out that, that works really well for them. And that ended up leading to the, to the book getting written. So that's, that's how the transition to healthcare happened. Yeah. Well, and I know a number of the people uh, from Simpler and um, the the work that they have done in healthcare to work and to to help a lot of organizations and um and, and we'll talk a little bit more about some of that Simpler methodology and your your experiences. But I'm curious if you could elaborate, um, you know, back to the conversation with Mark Hafer about about your thoughts on lean design. Well, that's not going to work in healthcare. Can you what what was behind your your hunch or your your, your skepticism there? Well, it was so easy with product design that you have widgets or cars or cell phones or whatever you're, you can actually hold in your hand. And I, although I'd been exposed to services at, at GE, healthcare is, is basically delivering a service. It's there is there are no products. Uh, I mean, medical devices that are that go home with patients, but that that's part of the overall care. And I didn't see how sitting in a in a doctor's office or, you know, being in a, a clinic, how product development could over overlap with that. And then after I spent some time in a couple of clinics, I realized they, they literally had 
no methodology to formally go from an idea how to try something new to actually implement it. It was usually this sharp surgeon that, you know, came up with something or a doctor that said, I'm sick with this or a nurse that had an idea and there weren't formalized ways for creating new services or new patient care models. Yeah. And, you know, I, from what I've seen in healthcare, um, as much as you can generalize, and I think this is a fair generalization, um, when you look at, uh, you know, healthcare delivery from a process standpoint, a lot of times, you know, frankly, the processes have, were, were never really designed. It just evolved. Right. And I think the same thing, I mean, one of the times when I've been involved in the design or build out of a space, when you look at the existing space in the current state, it, you know, there, this similar thought, you know, um, may have been lacking or the, the intentionality, if that is that even a word, you know, intentional design of, you know, people struggling with things like, uh, you know, our um, uh, uh, equipment supply room's never been big enough. I'm like, well, right. so what was the thought process? And, you know, did somebody just say, well, here's the space we've got. They'll figure it out. It seems like oftentimes yeah. the space just evolves or there's not that integrated space and process design. And, and so that sort of leads into maybe the, the, those are some of the problem statements or the frustrations that lead to people taking a lean design approach, right? Right. And I, I did a lot of early work with uh, VA, uh, different military branches um, with, with clinic design and hospital floor design. And, the, you know, the main thing that would come into these contractors that have been in place for years would say, hey, here's what the government regulation books say. Let's multiply at times what you think you want. And this is what the floor space looks like. And yeah, you're right. That That's how it comes along. And then they just add on and tack on to that. And we were able to cut a clinic size in half you know, saying, Hey, here's, here's how to handle, you know, basic operational waste. Yeah. Cutting it in half without feeling cramped because space exactly. is the right way. Right. And most people can't fathom that. And and that's, yeah. you know, just simple, simple lean principles. Yeah. So the, you know, and, I, and I've worked with, and I've interviewed um, at least one architect on, on the podcast. Um, and, you know, there are architects who are partnering up with consultants and, the construction and engineering firms and the hospitals to really come up with good integrated solutions. But, you know, there's one hospital that I was, you know, I was working with seven or eight years ago and the building footprint was what it was. And they were trying to build out some space. And I think sometimes I've seen designs that are driven by an architect, apparently trying to do cool stuff. And like this building uh, was shaped like a parallelogram. Mm-hmm. And so the one, the, the, the layout for the planned, um, you know, equipment storage room was triangular shaped. Uh-huh. And I remember this was up in the Northeast and I won't try to do the accent, but I, I can just have this vivid memory of one of the nurse very sarcastically saying, oh yeah, that'll be great for all our triangle shaped equipment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now I've seen nurses stations that are hundred yards wide and you know, you're just thinking, why, why did, they, why did they do so, that? Yeah. And so that, yeah. And, and I've seen space, you know, on the better side that is intentionally designed to right. foster communication and teamwork and collaboration and, and the things that we know um, help improve care. Um, but let's step back a little bit before, you know, I want to hear, you know, obviously more of your thoughts on, on lean design, mm-hmm. but um, can you, to talk about the book, you know, again, the title is lean design in healthcare, a journey to improve quality and process of care. Um, what, what led to the writing of the book? I was at Hims 
um, a couple years ago, and there was a publisher running the bookstore. And I asked if they had anything on the topic of lean design and healthcare. And, and they pointed to a couple of books. And mm-hmm. they said, we, we really don't have, you know, kind of what we're looking for. And I said, well, would you like someone to, to write something on establishing systematic innovation? So we called it lean design and healthcare. Uh, you know, that's uh, lean is one of their uh, niches, but it's really about establishing systematic innovation. So it's how to go from idea to launch. And so lean design, um, doing it in, in the healthcare environment. And that's how, the, that's how the book was birthed. And, and now, like, unlike um, a couple of the other books on the topic, this one is more of a story or sort of fictionalized type format. Can you talk a little bit more about um, why you chose to write it that way, what you think some of the benefits are? Yeah, so they, they, they asked me, they said, here, the publisher said, these are two books that we like. Can you combine them into one? Mm-hmm. One, was, one, was, uh, one was a story and one was, a, you know, how to do it. And I said, sure, I'll write it as a fable. I, I haven't done that type of writing before, but, you know, I can write it that way. And I'd actually gone through the first draft. Um, I guess that was later in the conversation, but I had gone on the first draft, not written it as a, as a story, written it as a textbook, if you will, or traditional book. And, and I think the benefit to the story is that the characters can become relatable and you can pick it up and you can, you can almost get through it really fast. Um, not realizing that you're ingesting a significant amount of um, why things happen because you're getting it in the dialogue back and forth between the characters that we follow through it. Yeah. So the, you know, the, the topic of the book, you've touched on it, but maybe it's just, you know, kind of go back and reset. Um, how, how do you define lean design or what, what, what's some of the terminology that you like to use around this? Yeah. So one of the things that, you know, we talk about and the word innovation is overused, which I'm glad it wasn't in the title now, but um, anything, you know, when we, we talk about early in the book, what, what is innovation? And we talk about it, it's the, it's when you actually introduce something that obsoletes what was used before. Mm. And in healthcare, that's specifically around what service um, are you offering? And obsoleting means patients no longer want it. Just like when the iPhone came out or the BlackBerry came out, the flip phones, you know, died. And so if, if we create something that nobody wants, that's the biggest waste in any type of product development. So with lean design, we wanted to be able to say, how do we introduce stuff that obsoletes it? And then how do we do it so that it's extremely accurate? So we actually studies all of the development methodologies that are out there. Agile, lean product development, design thinking, user-centered design, design for Six Sigma, and had uh, long arguments and debates uh, in the real world on what works and what doesn't work in healthcare. And what we wanted to be able to do with lean design is say, organizations that don't have this, let's create a model that's simple that anyone can pick up and go run with today without having to be a practitioner or an expert in any of those. And so, yeah, you know, you talk about phones, you know, the BlackBerry in a lot of ways obsoleted the flip phone, the iPhone kind of obsoleted the idea of the hard physical keyboard. Right. Um, even though I'll tell you, my wife gave up her BlackBerry very begrudgingly. <laughs> 
she loved that physical keyboard, but, 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 but we adapt, she adapted and, and she's fine um, with, with the iPhone now. But, you know, one of the challenges it seems with innovation is that there's that uncertainty of, have we created something that nobody wants? You know, that makes me think of some of the discussion uh, in the, in the realm of lean startup of like, well, Mm. you know, two questions, can we build something and should we create something? Um, So, you know, are there, are there similar thoughts around lean design or how, how do you, if somebody's trying to be innovative in healthcare, what can you do to try to reduce some of the risk that it turns out to be something that nobody wants? Yeah, no, I, I think the biggest thing, and a few years into my career, I, as a design engineer, I discovered this and I said, why am I designing the parts I'm designing or why am I designing the systems the way I'm designing it? And I actually went back to school and that's when I got my, my MBA, but I focused on market research and understanding why do people buy things. And so the past, you know, 12 years that I've been doing, you know, consulting, whether internally or externally, probably the number one thing I've found is a poor voice of the customer. And it's not that we say, hey, let's get in a room, let's talk about it. Let's say this is what our customers want, but it's actually getting deep. And, you know, Steve Jobs said, no one asked for the iPhone. You know, Henry Ford was, you know, famously noted for whether he said it or not, but if I had to ask my customers, they'd want faster horses, not a car. And what I've found is customers can articulate about half of what they want, whether that's a patient, whether that's a, a consumer. Um, and then the other half, you, you can only get through observation and deep conversations. And organizations, it's really tough for them to engage in that unless you have dedicated resources, unless you're humble enough to say, I don't know what they want. Um, then it becomes troublesome and, and you, you miss. So with reducing the risk, you have to not talk. You have to be all ears and listen and ask open-ended questions. And then you'll know, should we make this or not? Yeah, that's right. I think, you know, there are great parallels. Uh, I, I know a little bit about design thinking, just enough to be dangerous, but it seems like there's this idea of not just asking people, but going and observing. And, and that reminds me of Lean, of going to the Gemba observing the work, you know, in the, in the context of continuous improvement, there, there are some ideas you'll get just asking people, you know, what right. should we improve? But then there's a lot of things, you know, that people have sort of become uh, numb to or blind to. And, and you see somebody struggling, you know, I think of an example, here's a design issue at a real detailed level, you know, a nurse crawling on her hands and knees under a desk to plug in a computer cart. Right. And they said, well, wait a minute, that looks more difficult than it should be. And if you were to ask the nurse, like, oh yeah, yeah that's just the way it is. I do that all the time. <laughs> when the simple, you know, it's more of a Kaizen solution of, well, let's put a power strip in, you know, up at the wall so you don't have to crawl on the floor. Right. Um, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've seen, like, what are some other examples that you've seen kind of more in the design realm of, of needs or opportunities that you, that you gain from observation? Yeah. So some of the biggest uh, issues that I see that would cause me to say, go that way is, you know, we'll have a single physician that sees something in their clinic one way and talks to their colleagues and other organizations or goes to conferences and hears about something and then becomes fixated on the solution. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Another area would be um, as much as I like H caps and CG caps for, you know, understanding patient satisfaction, 
so many come in. I mean, you could have hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of comments every month, and they're not, we're not applying data analysis um, or AI on those comments to really find out what's happening. And then when you sit the patients down, healthcare is a deeply emotional service that's offered. A lot of people could be near death. We certainly, um, you know, want to be healthy so we can just do life. So the first thing they say is, I like it. And it, it takes a while to get down to, please complain to me about how we're doing something. And it would be easy to have a half an hour conversation with patients and not hear anything negative unless you're asking the right questions. And then once you break that ice, the floodgates usually open, even with the happiest patients. And that's where you find the opportunities. So come going back to um, voice of the customer, maybe we, we, we can delve mm-hmm. into a little bit, a little bit deeper. When you talk about, um, you know, kind of poor understanding of voice of the customer, what, what are some of the, the, the practices that lead to that? Is, is it as simple as saying, well, if they didn't go and observe or what, what are some other things that sort of lead yeah. to poor outcomes and design where we assume or we're attempting to meet customer needs? Well, if we look at healthcare, I don't think we have to go further than the EMR, um, you know, as far as internally about throwing something on that is number one leading cause of physician burnout. And clearly very little, um, you know, physician input went into that. Now they can do their job. You know, it has all the fields and things that they need to do it, but it, it just wasn't, it wasn't done uh, great. If we look at it from a patient perspective, uh, clinic offices has gotten very comfortable with, you know, what I would call banking hours. And if you look at the demand and you talk about when patients want to come in, they have, there's a, a, a big rush on Monday, right? Because they don't want to miss their work week. Friday's almost empty. Um, and then people don't want to take days off, especially in urban environments where they have to take a half a day or, or a full day Sometimes people, people can't. <laughs> they can't, right. Yeah. And, you know, so it's, it, you know, I don't mean call these innovations, but just having after hours or, you know, double staff on Mondays or having clinics at employers' offices are all simple things that, you know, if, if, if you were listening to the patient, you could, you could be, meet demand better. And we hear, we, we don't have any access. We don't have any access. Well, you're open for 10 hours. You see patients for eight and they're when the other, when the patients are working. It's it's inter- interesting to me that um, yeah I'm surprised payers don't put more pressure on um, clinics to change because I'm sure well you know it's more expensive if you end up going to urgent care or an emergency room because you have um, access issues around primary care hours. Um, it seems like I mean, it seems like unless it's just force of habit, like you said, is so strong around bankers' hours. I think at some point the insurers would come up with a way of incentivizing, um, you know, more evening hours or even some Saturday hours for, for people to come in and, and have care reimbursed at that lower primary care rate. Well, I think that's why we're witnessing such a boom in retail clinics, um, and especially in urban environments. And, you know, when I was doing some early research on service model redesign several years ago, CVS had gone from zero to, I want to say 40 clinics in this one uh, metropolitan area I was is working in, and when I when I talked to my client who was a primary care organization, you know they said, "Well, no one we knows go there goes there. Why would we end up going there?" And then it turns out 
someone said, well, I sent my kid there for a physical because I couldn't wait 90 days. And then everyone said, why would you send them to physical? And it was, and it was because it was convenient. And, um, and they say, well, they, patients want to know their physician. And when you dig in, it depends on the severity. The worse it gets, um, except for extremely comorbid patients, they don't care who sees them. They just want to be seen soon. And obviously when you're unconscious, you have no decision uh, making ability in that anyway. So, you know, who they want to see and, you know, so in, we talk about insurers uh, or, or payers, the ones that are, you know, handling our money to the doctor. Uh, I think we need to put pressure on them to say, hey, can you have these people stay open later? But we've got a, multiple generations of where the physician's the center and not the patient as the center. And so we, there, there'll be some disruption that'll have to happen, I think, before that generation shift occurs. And that goes down the whole licensing spectrum, you know, whether it's APCs or physicians or RNs, we, we have a tendency to push people up and when we could actually be pushing down. And, you know, there's, there's a whole phrase patient centered care. And, and, and sometimes like health systems seem to portray that as such a forward thinking innovation. And it all, it kind of begs the question though, like if healthcare was not patient-centered, what the heck else would it be? But I think you've answered it. It's sometimes doctor-centered or, um, you know, not to single them out. It's organization-centered. Here's what, here's what works for us as opposed to here's what's really needed by the patient, right? Yeah, and I haven't, every doctor I speak to is extremely passionate about caring for the patient. I mean, that that's why they got into medicine. That's why they want to do it. And we've have these you know, with all the switches in healthcare, they've been all these independent physician groups are being bought up and they're parts of conglomerate and they keep practicing how they were practicing in the past or they get rules, you know, foisted on them. And it's, it's almost out of their control how they, how they can see patients now and what the digital transformation has done to consumers where healthcare is severely lagging behind. So what do you, what are some of the opportunities or things that you would hope to see in healthcare when it comes to digital transformation? Well, I think when we, when we, when our life centers around our phone and the connections that we have, we expect to be able for anything that we interact with to be able to do that too. And, you know, if you're healthy and you see the doctor once a year or every five years or 10 years, um, which is actually recommended practice for, for some age groups um, that we'd expect when we interact it to be simple. And I never remember my password for any of my logins to schedule an appointment. And an appointment is actually, if you go into the office, a lot of um, electronic ones are then manually processed uh, against a, uh, a template of provider hours that don't reflect, you know, what, what people are requesting. And so simple stuff like I, when I want to be seen, I'm already past when I want to be seen. It's, I, I, it's enough agony where I've formally crossed into seeking medical care, despite my huge uh, deductibles, despite how much I'm going to have to pay, I'm seeking formal care and I, I want it now. And we, we can do a lot to streamline that. A lot of technology just from our phone or from, you know, to be able to to do that instantly and not have to wait days or weeks 
Um, that, that's just a simple example, but there's a lot of things from a, from a technical perspective that, that we can streamline how we provide care. Yeah. And, and just, you know, to bring up just a, a real um, situation, I, I had a, a very minor surgical procedure on uh, my pinky last Friday. It was nothing major. It was just, you know, local numbing, uh, had a cyst on, you know, that was growing on top, mm. uh, you know, under the skin on top of a knuckle and it wasn't debilitating, but it was uncomfortable and it was yeah. annoying. And, you know, but so the, 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 the long, the full value stream was, okay, I detected a problem. I was at my primary care physician for just kind of ongoing um, health maintenance check, mm-hmm. some lab work. And I mentioned the finger and he looked at it and I Googled it and we both agreed like, oh, it's probably a ganglion cyst. As I mm-hmm. said, well, you know, I could drain it, but you'll probably end up coming back to get us. All right, I don't want rework. Let's, let's try to get to the root of right. it. So he referred me to an orthopedic surgeon. So then that took a couple of weeks to get in between her schedule and mine. And the office visit with her was really about 30 seconds long where she looked at it and touched it and said, oh, yeah, that's a cyst. Let's get you scheduled for surgery. Mm. And so then you know, I was talking the other day to somebody who's the CEO of a startup that's trying to do more uh, virtual health. And he was kind of laying out a scenario where like if I had been under their care, like, yeah, you probably could have just uh, sent a picture to the surgeon and, and maybe skipped that consult step. And so, you know, I'm kind of, I think it's interesting to think through like, well, there could be efficiency, but like, what was the value of her actually touching the finger for a a brief second versus just looking at a picture? These are some of the things that we have to figure out. Is the innovation obsoleting something or is it cutting corners? Right. Right. Yeah. And we certainly, you know, we've done a number of audits on, on, you know, appointments going back hundreds, thousands of them and saying, Hey, did, did a doctor actually need to see this? Did they actually need to see it in the office? And far and away, um, neither of those were necessary, um, to be able to do it. Uh, what the, what the patient needed to be done. There are, uh, exceptions to that, but still, like you said, you probably had to go through an insurance pre-authorization cognizant to you or not. Um, yeah. To get approval for that, so the, and then the medications behind it, and picking up the medications, and there's just a lot of streamlining from technology. I don't want to say it's simple it, it, because healthcare is complex; it's it's made mm-hmm. it harder. But there are organizations that have done it and that are doing a good job. And we could just you know copy what they're doing. That would be innovation for a lot of people. Yeah. So, um, did, did people get sort of? Um hung up on the idea that copying someone else is bad and that innovation says we need to figure it out ourselves. Like what, what, what are your thoughts on finding the balance there? I think the big thing that people want is they want to improve their organization's metrics, whatever they're measuring. Um, so some may be, you know, maybe it is the, their quality score from a cap survey. Some of them may be, you know, days to cash. Some of them may be, you know, RV, you know, RVUs in a week. Um, but I, I think they don't care where it comes from. And the people that are talking the loudest are, are the people that get their solution and without really understanding the problem. And with digital transformation, CIOs are extremely powerful. Software makers are extremely powerful. And there isn't a lot of technical expertise within healthcare to push back on that. Um, and certainly you can see it in other industries too, whether that's, you know, banking and insurance or manufacturing with 
with blockchain or, you know, some of these other technologies. And if you don't have that debate, you never, you don't understand what you're really getting from. And you just introduce a whole new slew of workflow issues um, that makes someone's job better, but 10 other people's uh, job worse. Mm. Uh, So, I mean, you know, two hours of EMR charting to one hour of, you know, seeing the patient, stuff like that. Yeah. And that's understandable then of how that leads to burnout. Right. As you, as you mentioned earlier. Right. So if we, if if we're saying, Hey, we want to be innovative, you know, the first thing I say is, well, the leader, you need to be bought in. If you're not bought into being innovative, it's going to fall, it's going to fail. And that's with any, you know, transformation initiative, you know, what, regardless of what you want to do. But once that happens, you've got to go see what's going on in your world. You know, what, what is your, what is your Gemba and, you have secondary data and you've got primary data. So you can go collect what's already out there. Um, what are the competitors doing? You know, what are your, what are the comments being made? And, but then primary data, go collect, go talk, do it in waves. You know, in the, in the book, I talk about doing it in, you know, in, in different steps so that you don't have the assumption going into the solution. By the time you understand them deep enough, you're actually searching for a solution um, that'll fix that problem instead of vice versa. Yeah. Um, so, you know, coming back to the, to the book and, you know, back to your work at, at Simpler, um, how, how do you describe what is uh, the Simpler design system? Yeah. So the Simpler design system was basically some principles from lean product development. Uh, they uh, had codified those into, you know, kind of best practices and, well, that was designed for cost, designed for manufacturability, um, the concept of a, you know, chief engineer, a very, uh, you know, manufacturing focused. And that's where we drove uh, most of the improvements on the R&D side for firms that created products. That, that was what the simpler design system was. Mm-hmm. And then differences or, you know, what, what maybe just build on that a little bit more. What, what are some of the key differences between designing products and designing services? Well, I think we, we had two issues we needed to, to deal with. One is that that was very hev- heavily um, hardware focused. And accordingly, um, there weren't very little in, on the, as far as the services. And then secondly is, Healthcare doesn't want to hear about widgets. They want to hear about patients and physicians. They're the most educated uh, industry out there. And the examples and everything need to be for them. And you need to actually do work with them. And so that, that, that was really how we had to. So from going from simpler design system to lean design and healthcare was a, a massive upgrade in how to, what does the approach need to be to be successful in healthcare? And we had to pull in all of the other methodologies because software was a big thing. Um, obviously the whole market research front, you know, piece uh, was a big thing. And when clients would ask about any one of those, we couldn't just say, Oh, use this. It was, it worked 10 years ago for Toyota or Honda. We needed to be able to say, Oh, you can call this CEO at this healthcare system and find out how it's working for them right now. Um, so, you know, in the context of, uh, you know, the, the lean design process, um, whether it's in healthcare or other organizations, what are some of the most common failures 
that you see when people try to use this approach and, and how can some of those be avoided? Yeah, that that's great. And I have a, a section of one chapter dedicated to what I called basics. And I, I have the characters joke around, well, if that's basic, that'd be, you know, that's the equivalent of asking someone to go run a 5k who's never run before. <laughs> yeah, And, you know, a 5k certainly is easily doable for anybody. I just could take some time to get there. And so some of those are, you know, I mentioned leadership buy-in and it can't just be lip service. It has to be the business leader has to be driving it, uh, actively driving it. But, but behind that, you need to have dedicated resources. If you don't have people, whether that's one FTE or 10 FTE, I, so many clients, I would say, just give me one and we can do some pretty cool things with, with just one. And so, but there had to be dedicated FTE uh, to that. They needed to have their own space. They needed to have their own budget. It needed to be separated from operations. Because at the end of every month or at the end of every quarter, it'd be easy to pull that budget back out. Mm. Um, so we need to, to make sure that those resources are um, dedicated. And then we need to have a formal framework. Even if a framework is three bullet points on a post-it note, we need to follow something. I think some of the, I'll call it silliest things I've heard is stick smart people in a room and have them come up with a great idea. And in isolation. In isolation. Yeah. And I think you certainly can get good ideas out of that, but you will never get a great idea out of that. And you certainly won't get the incredible ideas that come out of a formalized framework where you don't have to worry about the scientific part of it, where you can focus all of your effort on the creative side of it. So then you talk about executives not just giving lip service. I mean, what, what, what can you talk more about the importance of? you know, in your work as, as, as a consultant or coach, um, the, the importance of executive relationships, how can, how do you try to, um, you know, convince them or open their eyes, help them discover that they need to do more than just give lip service? Yeah, Mark, you've been doing lean consulting for a while. And I, I think you'd probably say the same thing. If you're doing a Hoshin Conry session or, you know, strategy deployment session, and you're looking at the number of initiatives in the North box, um, the one thing I see all the time is there are just too many things listed in that North box. And we like to see focus in organizations. Um, so if you're going to say innovation, don't have it be one of 15, have it be one of three to five. Um, because you can't be an active cheerleader for 15 initiatives. And so that that's, so in getting the executives team to say, these are the five most important things we're going to do in 2019 is a significant amount of effort to get them to usually reduce the list to those five. That doesn't mean that's all we're doing. That just means that's what's most important to us to hit our annual goals, to hit our three, our three year goals. And so that conversation, and you know, usually that's several days or several days built over a, a, a couple, couple of months um, is, is critical to getting the buy-in to getting everyone on the same page. And then making sure that that uh, in that those during the conversations that the CEO is, you know, at, at least an eight, nine, or ten on willingness to push it forward. If there are six or seven, if you say one to ten, where are you? If they say six or seven, that you have to go back until it's higher. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I think um, it's funny you talk about kind of that one to ten 
question on on uh, commitment. There, there's sort of in a, a there's a field that I've taken interest in. I've done a couple of podcast episodes with people about something called motivational interviewing. Is that something you've oh. heard of by chance? Oh yeah, yep. <clears throat> so there, you know, there's those two those classic questions. I'm on a scale of one to ten. Um, how what what's your level of commitment? And then the second question of what's your um, confidence? And so if you you say someone's a seven, I think there's the interesting follow-up question of, well, why'd you say seven instead of two? And the answers to those questions tend to be things that strengthen commitment. If you ask, well, why didn't you say 10? Well, now that either, you know, people get defensive or now they're talking about the negative and and that probably doesn't move them forward, right? So, I mean, in a lot of these situations with executives, you're you're trying to play coach, and you you have to influence. You're, you're trying to influence. You can't tell them what to do, even if right. they, on some level, they say, "Well, we've hired you to tell us what to do." You know, <laughs> more complicated than that, right? Yeah, well, you know, like if you want me to get something done, and and then it disappears, then yes, I can tell you what to do. But if you wanted to be become, become part of your culture and your legacy, then I have to coach. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, it's just kind of maybe it's just building on that a little bit. You know, do, do you often find, I mean, you know, there's that balance of, you know, maybe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe ideally a client, a good client want, or, you know, a, a client that's more likely to be successful mm-hmm. is asking you to help them develop an approach that's own, that's their own and, and, and they own it and they're improving it versus, oh, Adam, just come in and tell us how we should do this. Yeah. So I, now I, I don't engage with ones at all. Hmm. Come in to say, "Hey, Adam, come in and, and do this for us." Uh, yeah. I just that—that's not something I want to be part of my, you know, my legacy. Mm-hmm. Is to say, I could, you know, came in and did this. I would much rather be a multiplier. So when I when I see an executive team that's curious and humble over one that's know-it-all and proud. Mm. And I know I have the fertile soil to get done what needs to be done. Um, that, that's probably, I can tell within a minute of a conversation, whether that's uh, going to work or not. So kind of instead of um, the waste of creating somebody, uh, I'm sorry, I'm butchering your phrase from earlier. Instead of the waste of creating something that nobody wants, let's mm-hmm. not create an engagement. <laughs> Right. Really well. Right. Right. Um, Better to discover that up front than part way through an engagement, I guess. That's you you just get two frustrated parties. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, just speaking, you know, as as consultants, and I know there's a lot of consultants in the audience. um, Yeah. I mean, there's nothing more powerful than word of mouth and referrals. And that only comes from clients that are just wildly successful on them. Right. At least as, as they would define successful. Right. Um, let's see. So, um, you know, coming back again to the book, Lean Design in Healthcare, A Journey to Improve Quality and Process of Care. Where, where can people learn more about the book? Where can they buy it if they're interested? Yeah, so it's available in Kindle and hard copy on Amazon um, or on the uh, publisher's page, which is uh, Productivity Press book Taylor and Francis from Taylor and Francis group. So, mm-hmm. you, can, you know, you can buy a copy on there, um, whatever version. I don't have an audio book, but uh, there's an electronic version and hard copy. 
Yeah. And your book probably, since very story driven, that probably would lend itself pretty well to an audiobook treatment, right? I, I think it would. I, you know, I've teased it with the, with the publisher and, you know, there we'll, we'll see, we'll see what happens from that. But one thing I, we are adding, um, and the, the manuscript will be done here soon is a workbook to this that will be much more textbook feel to it. So if with the two together, I think anyone can sit down in any organization, any C-suite and have a really an excellent game plan on, on how they're going to do it. And then what are the different ways that you work with organizations and some of the services that, that you provide if people are interested in having you um, teach them or coach them or work with them in different ways? Yeah, I think, you know, the big piece is I, I really like storytelling. And that's one of the, you know, the major techniques that I use and because I've been across so many industries and I have had success in a lot of different areas. Um, just to be able to say, hey, I'm going to come in with understanding what you want out of a meeting, something around innovation or something around strategy, but I'm going to have the storytelling dialogue back and forth where you will probably see something that you hadn't realized prior to talking to me. So that's kind of my, you know, on the spot VOC, where if some organization is saying, hey, I think we need something around innovation or we don't have a good, you know, strategy or product or service roadmap, you know, let's have a conversation. I think that conversation becomes, you know, extremely powerful to finding out, wow, never would have thought of that. We just didn't know. And I like to think of myself as a forensic betterer, <laughs> you know, I'll kind of come in, do a Sherlock Holmes here's what's going on. Here's what you said you wanted. Let's have a conversation. Oh, that's what you really want. So that, I think that's probably the most powerful um, to the C-suites that I talk with now. Mm -hmm. So if a client is asking you for a faster horse, you can sort of try to guide a conversation that uncovers what it is they really want perhaps. Yeah. And maybe they do want a faster horse and that, and that is a lot of times what they're looking for and we can figure that out. But I, I think with the questioning technique that I use, it just it just opens eyes so much more onto what they can actually achieve. Well, and your website is adammward.com, right? Yep, two M's. Yep. People yeah, can, I almost yeah. misread that, so I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, I know it's it's the curse of having a, a a middle name with that starts with an M. A lot of people just put adamward.com, but that wasn't available. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I encourage people to go uh, check out the website, adamward.com. People can find you on social media as well. Yeah. So on Twitter, um, ADZ underscore M-I-K-L. That's Ads Michael. That's just shortened version of my first and middle name, Ads Michael. And then if you type in Innovation Adam on LinkedIn, they can find me there too. Okay, great. Well, um, congratulations on uh, the launch of the book. It's I know it's been out for a little while now. I was delayed and... Uh, following up to actually get you on the podcast. I, I hope it's off to uh, a good start um, out there in the market and I um, hope people will uh, go check it out. So Adam, do you have, do you have any final, uh, final thought you might want to leave the audience with? You know, Mark, thanks for having me. And I just want to challenge, you know, the people that are listening um, just to, to set aside thinking time each week. That's probably the number one tool that I use on, on, on innovation. It's our lives get so busy if we just have a couple hours where we're meditating or we're thinking or we're alone, we can achieve so much more. 
So less podcast listening time, more thinking time. <laughs> but I, but we need both of those. <laughs> we need both of those. Well, I know, I know your podcast today here, I'm sure, has generated um, a lot of thoughts. And uh, if you're listening to this while driving, don't meditate right now. But when you find a chance, um, uh, do yeah, do that. I could be better at that. That's something I'll, I'll reflect on. And again, go check out the book written by uh, Adam Ward, Le- Lean design in healthcare, a journey to improve quality and process of care. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.